Dear Asian Girl, for Asian girls, by Asian girls. Hello, lovely listeners. Welcome back to Dear Asian Girl. Today, we are joined by a very special guest to talk about art and belonging as an Asian creative in the UK. But before we dive into that, just a quick recap of the co-hosts we have here today. My name is Meghna. I am 19 years old, based in Los Angeles. I'm a student at UCLA, and I'm Indian American. I use she, her pronouns. Take it away, Eden. Hello, my name is Eden. I use she, her pronouns as well. I am 21 years old, and I'm a second-generation Chinese-Malaysian girl based in between West London and Bristol in the UK. And I'm a recent graduate, so I just started working as admin assistant for a grassroots community benefit organization. Now, to introduce our very exciting guest, who, if you don't already know, you will know super well by the end of this episode. Hello, Monica Watt. Can you give us a 30-second whistle-stop tour of your life, activities, career so far? Yeah, no pressure at all. Um, Hi, everyone. I'm Monica. I'm from Hong Kong originally, and I'm now based in Bristol, the UK. I am a singer-songwriter. I write a lot of personal stories about my life. A lot of the themes are quite related to the themes that Dear Asian Girl talks about as well, like belonging, identity, just life in general. And I actually love a lot of different forms of creativity. I started out as a painter. I did theater as well growing up. And I started writing songs when I was 12 years old. And I love creative writing as well. And now I work in the film industry as a freelancer sometimes. And I'm also a filmmaker who loves telling visual stories. And most recently, I have started, you know, founding different creative projects as well, like the Arts Festival Moonfest, which we'll talk more about in a second. Yes. Oh, my God. I can't wait to hear more about Moonfest. But for now, let's kind of paint a picture let's let's get to the background a bit and talk about belonging because that's such a big part Mm -hmm. of this conversation I feel like you know we currently live in an age where technology and social media is a really important way to create connection and a sense of belonging Maslow in 1968 introduced belonging as a need in his hierarchy model that suggests certain needs must be met before others can be pursued and belonging ranks third on this model Um, right after physiological and safety needs have been met. So belonging is a huge part of how we live our lives. It always has been. And art is a really big way in which we can cultivate this sense of belonging. Studies have shown a decrease in race-based trauma stress and more positive emotions from connecting with Asian social media, messaging and written content online. And that is exactly why Dear Asian Girl exists. Yay! So considering all of like the importance and significance of belonging, we actually wanted to ask you, Monica, where do you feel the most belonging? And what does belongingness, if that's the term to use, even mean to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely such a fake term if we just think about it, right? But um, I would say personally, belonging is very much intrinsically tied to a group of people that I feel connected to or where I feel understood and so there are pockets of moments that I feel like that and it's not necessarily tied to a certain like very obvious category as well so for example 
doesn't have to be an Asian community. It doesn't have to be a, a creative community. Um, and it could be just like with a few people, with one or two people and not even with a, with a wide group of people. And so I think the moments that I felt the most belonging, um, if it's in Hong Kong where I was growing up, I think that would be when I got to vote for the first time and also the last time because I had been waiting for it for so many years and I felt like it was my active participation in society that was also recognized and I remember seeing so many other Hong Kong people lining up to vote and it was such a significant moment of my life and there are sometimes like smaller moments as well or more intimate moments for example um, when I perform for an audience that I feel like it's completely attuned to my storytelling or I feel that they understand me that's also really um, cathartic um, to do performances like that and in general I think I have such a, a passion for anything creative anything that advocates for our rights and so whenever I feel like people are expressing their true creativity or their desires to have the rights and freedoms that we deserve I think that's when I feel the most belonging so yeah it can be really varied but yeah I do sometimes feel like I belong fortunately yeah I really like that more flexible definition of belonging because I think for a long time belonging in its like simplest terms has been really tied to geographical like a physical location and when you define it like that it's really difficult to feel a sense of belonging as a, as a kid from the diaspora because if you're diasporic if you're like moving around a lot and you belong or you've been in and you've lived in many places it's really hard to feel a sense of belonging in any one place and that can be a really empowering thing, you know, like you belong everywhere, but can also be really disempowering because it feels like there's not this one place where you feel a really true sense of like whole belongingness. So I really like that definition of belongingness as these pockets of moments when you feel understood or appreciated. And I think it's really true that it comes down to those smaller moments rather than, oh, I belong in the UK. I belong in China. I belong in Malaysia in my circumstances because I don't feel an absolute sense of belongingness in any of those places. Yeah, I feel you when we don't fit neatly into social categories. It can be really hard to feel that organized, clear sense of belonging as well. And so you're so right that maybe my answer stems from working really hard to figure out where are the little spaces that I belong. And so it is not necessarily um, a conventional group, but more like little moments where I feel like I could be with my tribe or even I could create a space for people who connect with each other. Yeah, I really resonate, especially with that idea of finding belonging in, in groups of people and people you really feel tied to. Because like I remember coming to college for the first time and I am still in the same geographical location I've been in my entire life. But all of a sudden, I felt so unanchored. I felt like I didn't belong because the people around me were so unfamiliar. And mm. I felt very, like, 
alone. And then when I found the spaces where there were people who I was able to connect with, I was able to find similar interests with, especially like clubs and, and organizations that I was super passionate about. Like that was when I came to this feeling of, yes, I belong here in this new university college setting. But none of that actually happened until I actually found those groups of people. So I totally understand what you mean by belonging being tied to the people we care about. Yeah, that's so wonderful. The The point about feeling lonely when you don't have a community to belong to, that's also really true. And it's like growing up, even though I grew up in Hong Kong as um ethnic majoritized group, but I recognize that privilege. But there were a lot of times when I felt like, because maybe of my interest or maybe you know, my personality being quite maybe outspoken and proactive. And then I didn't fit into this Asian culture of silence and obedience in the education system. And so growing up, I definitely didn't feel like I belong. And instead, I would find pockets of communities online where I would belong, um, like fandoms, you know, growing up. And then, yeah, so... I- <laughs> And luckily, like when I grew older, there were friends in real life that I could also connect with. So that's so true. Now that we've kind of mentioned Hong Kong um, and we know you're based in the UK now, Mm -hmm. how about we talk a bit about how moving around has kind of shaped your sense of belonging um, and how this might have influenced your various art forms? Yeah, I think the experience of moving around is really strange. It prompts me to actively reflect on how I came Mm. to be who I am and where do I belong and to whom I belong and whether I belong anywhere at all kind of going back to the point you said earlier if we don't belong anywhere does it mean we can belong everywhere but of course it's an ideal Mm. and I think um for me growing up in Hong Kong um I also knew that it was not just Hong Kong. So Hong Kong was a very international city when I was growing up and I was born into an Italian Catholic community as well. And Mm -hmm. for example, my godmother is Italian and she worked in Hong Kong for many years. And so I almost Mm -hmm. didn't question that where I belong is when there are people from all walks of life, from different cultural backgrounds, because that was the norm when I was growing up. And then later on, when I went to uni and I found myself surrounded by people from all over the world as well, and that was incredible. And I felt like that was where I belonged. And of course, it's it's like a very neat answer, but there was a lot of identity crisis mm-hmm which we'll also talk about probably. But um, yeah, there was a lot of identity crisis that led to me being relatively at ease with this idea. And then, of course, when I moved to the UK, I was made aware of how Asian I am. It's almost like I didn't have a choice, but from the expressions of the people, from the little words that they said to more explicit moments of mistreatment disrespect discrimination I could tell that I was constantly um, 
trying to find a place to land, but then feeling like I was shoved around involuntarily. And so it definitely disrupted my sense of belonging. And yeah, it's a complicated process. I think so much of my issue with the terminology that we use, like belonging, comes down to the fact that, and this is a fact I bring up constantly, that our language, the language that we've inherited and the language that we create, because language is a social phenomenon, so we are actively creating it in our societies. So, so much of my issue with it is that it's inherently colonial. And so the the words that we use to describe things and the definitions that we ascribe to certain words are inherently colonial. And it means that when we're using them as, so see, even the, even the terminology people of color, you know, it's like, why aren't white people people without color? And why are we a minority group? We're a minoritized group and we're a global majority. You know, it's all the language we use. And when we use it as global majority individuals, it can feel really disillusioning because it doesn't feel like that language accurately reflects our lived experience. And it's because the language is colonial and inherently as global majority people, we're searching for decolonial ways to process and live our lives. And so I think that's why belonging has always been a really difficult term for me. It's because it, it's grounded in the sense of like, we belong here, you are an other, you belong somewhere else, you know, like go back to where you came from kind of thing. I think that's my, that's what my issue is mm. with the term. Yeah, I'd never really thought about the origin of the word or the concept of belonging, actually. Is it like when you said it's Maslow hierarchy of needs? So it was Maslow's um, like idea? I don't know if it originated there. I'm I'm sure it must have been in use before he like formally introduced it as like a sense of like where you come from. But I don't know. That's the kind of sense I get now is that belonging is like tied to coloniality <laughs> very heavily. Yeah, maybe if there's an yeah overemphasis on belonging, it's also unhealthy, right? Because we're so obsessed with this idea of belonging, of being in certain groups and that prevents us from living freely even though of course practically speaking it's not possible to live freely but yeah it's but then I also think maybe it's just a universal feeling of wanting to belong somewhere because our brains are wired to be social beings and yeah and I think yeah I'm I try to think like whether there's an equivalent of the word belonging in in for example Chinese language as well <laughs> but I I don't think it can be directly translated. Yeah. No, yeah, you, like, Eden, you make so, such, like, valid and amazing points there. And honestly, like, when you first said language, like, I don't know why, but the first thing I thought of was, like, different, like, types of, like, language, as in, like, you know, like, English or Malayalam or Hindi or, like, all these different types of languages, because... I feel like we were talking about um, moving around and how moving around affects our sense of identity and a sense of belonging. And something that I think is so critical to people feeling like they may not belong is this like loss of like language and loss of cultural aspects in general. Like, for example, um, I also moved around a, a lot when I was younger. Um, I moved back and forth between India, like when I was like three to six years old I moved back and forth a lot and I attribute that period of kind of instability and 
just movement as one of the reasons why I like lost touch with my mother tongue um, and my parents' mother tongue. And also like, it's kind of one of the reasons why I felt so alienated in a lot of cultural group settings in, in Indian communities because people were able to relate to each other in their own languages. Mm -hmm. Um, while I was over here kind of just with my English and not able to fully value and appreciate a lot of the media and a lot of the just places of belonging in Indian communities. Mm -hmm. So um, that's what I thought was also really interesting that when we move around, when we're part of the diaspora, we can sometimes be disconnected to the things that make us feel like we belong. Mm, yeah, and language is such a thing that can unite as much as divide people, right? Um, and even growing up in Hong Kong, I acknowledge that I didn't experience that much instability in terms of the geographical location where I was, except that, of course, there have always been a lot of... Um, complex narratives you know Hong Kong being ruled by the British government and then given to the Chinese government and and yet yeah, surrounding that there was a lot of turmoil already but um language um even in my personal life it was it was such an interesting element that shaped it because when I was growing up I went to a very much like local government subsidized school and being fluent in English was not normal. Like everyone just spoke Cantonese to each other in class or outside of the classroom, except when it's like English classes and people were like, how are you today? You know, those were very like fake English um, interactions. And then I think somehow because of the internet, I just absorbed the English language. And when I was a teen, like it came to the point where my English was quite fluent and that weirdly alienated me from people around me as well my peers who thought oh you know Monica now like she's into like English language stuff and she wants to be cooler than the rest of us and there were like noises like that I could hear behind my back and it became very disorienting but at the same time I knew that it was just through materials I could access in the English language I felt like I found pockets of community again going back to that sense of belonging and of course English being a global language has a very complicated history as well but I acknowledge that because of my fluency in the English language it both led me to new spaces but also kind of made me feel like I didn't belong anymore in the communities where I was almost like coming from in school so yeah language is yeah. always there shaping our lives right yeah I, I really relate to that complicated relationship with language and specifically with the English language you know you talk about how it's very like globally it's a very complicated history and a very like difficult history um, and it makes me think of well, like how language is always has always has been used as a colonizing tool. You know, it's how you reinforce and drive and, and perpetuate the process of colonization. Because if you control the language, if you can control the way that people communicate, you ultimately control them. You know, you control how they how they speak with each other and what they say. 
And if you look at a text like 1984 by George Orwell, you see the way that the creation of doublespeak, this language that completely obscures what you're really saying and that really like um, makes language reductive. And like there's like one, there's like always one word for like, uh, like 10 different words. Like it really reduces down like the complexity of the English language. That kind of thing is how... Like, like that is a dystopian text, you know, like, but it, but it really happened. Like English really was used as a colonizing force. And yet it's the one language that I am completely fluent in today as someone who's global majority. So I said I was Chinese Malaysian, but I'm specifically Hokkien. But I, though I understand Hokkien, when my parents speak it, I can't speak it myself. It feels really foreign on my tongue and my tongue and my lips don't make those shapes. And it's a really weird experience because that is that language feels most like home to me because it's always spoken around my home by my parents and by my extended family. But also it's such a barrier because when my when I go back home to Malaysia and my relatives are speaking it, that's a barrier between us because I maybe mm. won't understand everything that they're saying. And if I respond, I'll be responding in English, this colonizing language that they only understand fragments of. So it's really difficult, I think, trying to process my relationship to English, especially as someone who was born in the UK. So I wasn't born in my like home country, but also there's a weird way in which I do feel really tied and have this kind of complicated sense of belonging in the UK. And a lot of that comes down to the language. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's okay to accept that we exist in a world that is shaped by the past and not just English as well, but also French and Dutch colonizers. And, you know, and it's almost like there's there's a beauty in having a common language, but at the same time, there's weight to why it came to be that way as well. No, yeah, I completely relate, Eden, because I would say my relationship to my mother tongue, Malayalam, is very, very similar. Um, and I also think that language can be a unifying force and and like more general to the season we're in right now art can also be a very unifying force and and can help us develop a sense of belonging so monica i actually have a question for you like what connection do you think art has to belonging and and do you feel that sharing art cultivates the sense of belonging more and if so like what methods and, and how does that happen, do you think? Yeah, I love using art as a medium to process my experiences and feelings, especially when it's really hard to to just feel it all. I love to channel it into some sort of creative output, be it a song, a film, a short story, or a theater piece, you know? And so on the basis of that, I think moving around and not feeling like I belong one place, it's again a very confusing experience. And so, especially after I came to the UK, I think I've explicitly addressed the experience of not feeling belong even more. But even thinking back to when I put out my first song, I think both consciously and subconsciously, I wanted to be a song that is just about me, like not about me, but about my personal experience and not in relation to, you know, some romantic relationships or some boys, which 
or a lot of the other songs topic right and so to me memories linger because it is precisely about my experience of drifting between different places so I wrote the first kind of bits of the song when I was cycling in Melbourne Australia and I finished the song when I was back in Hong Kong and I put it out when I was in the UK and so in itself the song really went through a very international experience and in hindsight I definitely put it out because I wanted to introduce my music identity to the world honestly and truthfully and just about who I am and all these experiences that have shaped me and I definitely name drop you know places in Hong Kong and I have this really cheesy lyric about kangaroos but I really wanted it to be there because I was literally jumping with kangaroos you know just specific moments specific places like that to make an imprint um, to almost immortalize that experience of moving around and not feeling like I belong in one place but then also feeling at ease at certain moments with certain people again in the pockets of moments and yes it definitely um, influences my art and more recently after settling in the UK or maybe settling is not the best word because I wrote a song called stressed and it's about me stressing out about living in the UK (laughs) which is like oh if I don't belong here where do I belong so the song is just like me going on and on asking where do I actually belong where I should be and hopefully that song will come out soon as well fingers crossed if not early next year and before that so yeah I definitely use my art to inform it and then if not music then I have used film as well almost Like when I came to the UK, because the experience of not belonging can be so visual, like I visually look different to most of the other people, right? And so I think maybe that's why I really turned to filmmaking as a medium. Because, um, so for example, I made a film about me assimilating into the British culture by eating baked beans and Mewdews. If you don't know, like oh Mewdews is a really common thing in supermarkets in the UK. You can get it for like really cheap, and maybe not so cheap anymore, but <laughs> it's supposed to be affordable. And so I had two friends, and they even like <laughs> massaged their faces with baked beans, and just to kind of exaggerate that experience. And it's a dark comedy, and so <laughs> I had so much fun making it. And even though we had very little equipment just a lot of uneaten baked beans but uh, it was still (laughs) definitely an example of how I was processing my experience of moving around and like living in the UK who knows Mm. yeah there will be other projects maybe (laughs) yeah I think that that experience that you're talking about is something that's so real and so applicable to so many different types of people because you know the diaspora refers to like millions and millions of people and like thousands of different ethnicities so that's really really cool about you turning to filmmaking and having those themes in your art and I know we're like throwing this term diaspora around a lot but like what is the diaspora exactly right like the diaspora like refers to a large group of people who share 
like cultural and regional origins, but are living away from their traditional homeland. And that refers to so many different types of people. And, you know, diaspora comes about through immigration and forced movements of people. And we've seen a very, like, clear shift in younger generations who live outside of their home countries, reclaiming their cultures. Like, I know I personally have been trying to do that a lot more, especially in college, especially after learning to embrace and appreciate um, the Asian aspects of my identity more. Um, and social media, like specifically allows like young people to see influencers, content creators who have had this very applicable experience with their own culture, like just like this podcast, shout out to Dear Asian Girl. And I mean, after finding these sources of, of catharticism and um, these people who can relate so well to your experience, that's like super self-affirming. And a big part of the diasporic experience is the sense that you need to reclaim your culture because you exist outside of it and you need to somehow scramble to get it back to you. If we look at the Hanfu movement, this is where young Chinese people are increasingly favoring wearing Hanfu, so clothes once worn by the ancient Han Chinese and, and other people in China, as an expression of their cultural identity and fashion. You see, well, I, I wore, for example, a Chi Pao for my graduation. Um, which isn't something I would have dreamt of doing when I was a little kid. It was something so out of reach. And that's a way in which diasporic kids feel like they're reclaiming their cultures. Sales of Hanfu clothing leapt more than 50-fold from 2015 to 2021, when they were over one when they were worth over 1.45 billion US dollars. And for this year, it's predicted to be worth 1.8 billion US dollars. That's a huge rise, and we're really seeing the way in which diasporic the diasporic communities are reclaiming through clothing so we just wanted to ask what do you think about this rec or this reclamation like how do you how do you relate to it and what do you think of it mm -hmm. yeah i think when we would use the word reclamation that implies something has been lost right maybe that part of our identity has been taken away in the first place i think identity is a funny thing and it's so nuanced and multifaceted as well I think there are parts of my identity that haven't been taken away. But again, when I live in the UK, I can definitely feel like this kind of East and Southeast Asian identity being manipulated into many different forms that often do not involve the consent of people from that culture. But I think ultimately, whether art has become a form of reclaiming our identities really depends on the individual because it can be so specific to each person and for myself I think even if I'm not reclaiming I, my identity at least in my music in my films in my stories it is a free space for me to share my perspective and to tell my truth and then you know we're always judged um, by other people uh, as to who we are, what our identities really are and what they mean. But then at least through art, I can tell my own version of the truth. And I think that's what matters the most when it is my personal identi identity that I'm putting forward. And not just my own art, because I think this question, it's phrased also about other people's art and maybe experiencing other other artists creations right and for me I definitely feel like listening to other artists work 
helps me make sense of my identity and almost maybe not even reclaiming because in the first place we didn't even have a, a space I think it's kind of theoretical but what I feel like is for example I listened to Nikki Zavania and she's an Indonesian artist and she's now based in LA as well like Megna and then she I feel like when she was earlier in her career she didn't think so much about her being Asian if that makes sense but in her most recent album she starts to like name drop um, growing up in Jakarta even has a song with Jakarta in the title and um, she put out this really poignant song called Split and it's about her feeling split between being in Indonesia and LA and I remember when that song was released when I first arrived in the UK trying to make sense of my existence that helped so much because finally there was a song that articulated this experience of feeling so split like oh I wish you know I wish there was this internalized part of me that wish I was British you know I was born and raised here so that I could feel like I belong but of course I know that's not true as well after learning about the experiences like you Eden and many of my other friends who grew up here but are of Asian heritages um but definitely that song helped me kind of reclaim that sense of existence and and Nikki as well like she is based in LA and together with her label they make space for Asian or Asian American artists and that's incredible and I also got to meet more like UK-based artists of Asian heritages thanks to the new wave of East and Southeast Asian movement. For example, ESEA Music is a group where sometimes there are events and initiatives that we could join. And I remember meeting like so many artists of Asian heritages in one room and it's so affirming. And And I think that was definitely a feeling of reclaiming or even creating that space and one of the artists I met is called Helen Ganya and um, she is of Thai heritage as well Um, and she has a song called Beautiful Country and there's a really powerful lyric that goes like um, it's a beautiful country depending on who you are and that was such a a moment of epiphany for me because I made sense of why I had been feeling so confused because oh to other people of course to a lot of people of you know white majority and they have no problem maybe no no problem but less problem feeling like Mm -hmm. they belong in a space or at least in regards to to that racial and cultural identity and so I definitely learned to use or experience art in order to reflect on my identity as well and that's incredible Mm, and I think that is exactly why sharing art can be so empowering not just for yourself but for other people like when we're like I recently attended the you you mentioned EC music but there's so many new EC things popping up in the UK nowadays and I went to the first EC Lit Fest in London recently a few weekends ago and it was just so memorable for so many reasons but I hadn't attended an event like that before where 
it entirely revolved around EC literature. Like there's there's not there's nothing like that that exists in the UK that I've ever attended, I don't think. And it was so empowering. And like it's yeah. because we're sharing art and we're talking collectively that we're able to find the words for things that we struggle to find the words for ourselves. Like when I was sat at the event and Tash all went up, he's my favorite writer of all time. And he was putting into words all of these situations and feelings that I was having, but was but was struggling to put into words and therefore struggling to process. That was such an experience. And side note, I met him after the event because I didn't realize they were doing a signing. So I bought a second copy of a book I really own from him. Um, and he wrote me a whole message in it and everything. And we had this whole discussion about my dissertation and everything afterwards. But first of all, I was just talking to him about how he, Strangers on a Pier, so his memoir, was the first text I have ever read in my 21 years of life that made me feel truly represented and truly recognized and acknowledged and heard. Like the first ever, like I've been in education my entire life. I've been reading my entire life. I've been studying English my entire life. I just graduated from a degree, like an English BA from the University of Bristol. And this whole time, it wasn't until I read Tash Orr that I felt like someone understood me because I was just reading and consuming so much from the white Western canon from these grumpy, crusty, old white men who knew nothing about my lived experience. And suddenly here I was reading someone who could put words to my life. And that was so, it was so touching. I literally cried. He had to get up and get me a glass of water because I was crying and holding up the line. Um, but he was so patient and he completely understood what I meant. Oh, Eden. And he also, I also found out that day that he's gay. And I was like, wow, one more thing to add to the tally. We are literally the same person except you're a man. Um, and it, if we didn't have events like that and people weren't sharing their art, their literature, mm -hmm. their, their filmmaking, we wouldn't get those kinds of experience, experiences, which are so pivotal and important as diasporic kids, especially, I keep saying kids, but as diasporic people. <laughs> we can still be in their children. I feel like a big yeah. kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I love listening to you telling that story. I get secondhand joy from that. It's really beautiful. And when you said oh, it was the first time you felt like, I'm paraphrasing here, but when mm -hmm. you said it's the first time you feel like you are understood or something like that, I think that reminds me of, yeah, when I was, I think, 18 and I was walking on a street back home nursing, like heartbreak, and then Spotify shuffled me, uh, again, Nikki's song, and I found out that she was Indonesian and she makes English language music and that was such a moment of representation because when I was a young teenager I always felt out of place right um creating in the English language somehow that second language at the time would give me enough emotional distance to process my experiences and I always thought I was the only person doing that and so listening to Nikki's song songs is very affirming because it makes me realize wow um, I'm not the only one and then of course at ESEA music I've met many people who of course make music in the English language because they are from the UK and in Hong Kong as well actually there are more artists who make English language music and you know it's it's something that I have never known, even though we were growing up in the same city with the internet. And, mm. you know, like Moontang, you know, I love listening to her songs as well. And so 
it's very affirming and it's really nice to be understood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you use that word representation, and that's that's the title of the season, guys. If you didn't know, representation matters. And yet, with representation, you get misrepresentations. And even inherently in the word representation, this is something that came up at the EC Lit Fest. Representation is a representation. So already there's a sense of distortion, there's a sense of something going through a filter. And so you get mm. presentations, representations, and misrepresentations. And with all of that bubbling around, you get a lot of tokenization, you get a lot of distortion when it comes to Asianness, especially in the white Western understanding. Yeah, so going with this idea of representation, sometimes being a distortion, being insensitive in certain ways. Uh, Monica, have you experienced moments of tokenization and exoticization? Like, and how do you process those moments? Yeah, and first of all, I just wanted to respond to Eden as well about, oh my God, I had never thought about representation the re in the representation I always just thought about it as like I don't know English like (laughs) a word that means presenting ourselves in the in the right way that make people feel visible I always thought of it like that but now that I think of it you're so right why is it not just presentation Mm -hmm. but representation um and unfortunately yeah um replying to Meghna I have had many uncountable small moments of tokenization and exoticization as well but um i want to kind of talk about them maybe separately because tokenization means feeling like you are chosen to represent your whole community in one context which is very reductive right and definitely i have noticed when i live in the uk that maybe a certain creative program has one artist of Asian heritage it's very unspoken and it's very implicit but I had the instinctive feeling that and then also from hearing from other artists of Asian heritage is that they probably you know this institution wanted to choose one artist to represent the whole community and to show that they are being politically correct you know there are definitely moments like that um but personally I think I probably have joined organizations being the only Asian person in the entire cohort and feeling like, oh, was I chosen because I was Asian Mm. or was I chosen because of my merits? And it's a question that it's very disorientating because it eats eats you alive and it eats away that self-esteem, that self-assurance and it's something I definitely only started experiencing in the UK for sure. And I recognized that I had the, I had the privilege to grow up in Hong Kong, again, in a system where someone who looks like me is normalized. And so I definitely acknowledge that. Um, even though Hong Kong is a very diverse place, you know, I grew up with um, people, friends who are of Eastern, Southeast Asian heritages and South Asian heritages, of course, um but uh, anyway going back to the UK and exoticization as well I think it's just again many confusing disorienting moments I remember walking into pubs and bars or even waiting in line for concerts and there were like 
white older men approaching me like oh are you Chinese and then of course ni haoing mm. me and then say oh my god like looking at me or treating me like I am something foreign but in a strangely eerily attractive way and uh, and um it's definitely very uncomfortable and then dating oh this is getting personal the tea um <laughs> like dating boys um who are you know white british and then i almost had that innocence that i miss but at the time i wasn't aware but um it was mentioned that his last partner and then i found out the next partner after me was also of asian heritage and then um mm. i wish i have that innocence back but like, yeah. <laughs> i realized there was probably something wrong and i was putting together all these puzzle p- pieces of moments that i didn't before and realized oh did he or questions like did he ever like me for mm. me or did he like me because i'm asian and that it's so hard to digest and then on the other hand i remember even like a friend of asian heritage is telling me oh you're the girl that i go and eat asian food with <laughs> and i was like what yes. and at once it's like either being exoticized or being too associated to my identity that it is reductive and uncomfortable so it's definitely a lot of like moments of feeling like attacked like a meme not the meme like yeah like the meme <laughs> yeah. but, like I did nothing but I just like exist and then I get attacked from all angles mm. <laughs> yeah it's it's tough but um that's why I try very hard to find people who again understand me and who wouldn't treat me like that you know yeah I think the imposter syndrome for sure like sometimes is so visceral like and it's really interesting because like you were talking about how tokenization and exoticization are very similar but also in different contexts so it's almost like imposter syndrome but in a personal relationship and that's so odd to me and that's such a struggle um and and the idea of someone knowing you as the friend that they eat asian food with that's definitely um an interesting experience and especially when that person is of asian heritage just like, yeah, <laughs> like oh my god like it's at once so it's like of course like i'm happy to eat asian food with you but just don't tag me not just label me mm. as this person who only eats asian food like i love the italian food as well you know like i love exploring different cultures and mm. you know making friends with people of all walks of life so just saying i'm like Asian Asian sometimes can be can be insulting but depends on the context of course and imposter syndrome it's also really yeah I, I definitely feel like maybe not so much an an imposter but I felt more like erasing definitely feel like erasing part of my identity in mm-hmm. order to assimilate right and maybe that makes right. it an imposter because I would be posing as someone that I I internalized the desire to be for example I'm using like really big words here so I'm just gonna explain it with a with the example of like me distancing myself from like BTS and Asian (laughs) supermarkets when I first arrived in the UK like it was almost it was so unconscious subconsciously done 
But I remember after this one time when, again, something similar to the friend with friend who eats Asian food moment. But um, I remember being in a big group of um university students, and I was the only person who had just arrived in the UK, and. The person who asked me this question, she knew it, but she asked,、um, "Do you know where like the closest like Oriental supermarket is?"、Oh、like、God. she asked me that out of everyone in the group, and I remember feeling very confused because I had、mm-hmm. just arrived in the UK for two weeks and I didn't know anything about Asian supermarkets, and I was like, "Oh, so everyone else had been here for three years? Maybe they would know better." <laughs> But just because I look、mm-hmm. Asian, you chose me to ask that question, and then it triggered my self distancing from Asian supermarkets. Because now, in hindsight, I know that I don't want to be the girl who is just associated with Oriental quote unquote Oriental supermarkets. You know that word in、mm-hmm. itself, I already don't、yeah. like. <laughs> and so,、um, for a while, I remember. I just didn't listen to English. No, I didn't listen to PDS, <laughs> which I always used. To, who I always used to listen to, and also I just didn't eat Asian food for a while, and it was very sad. And、uh, but I have a lot of empathy with that part of myself back in time because I know she was just trying to find her place and make sense of her existence in the UK. And I think I, I almost. It's like I get to have this shock because I got to grow up in an Asian majority place, and so I experienced this shock so vividly. Whereas for many of my friends, like you, Eden, right, who grew、mm-hmm. up here, and you have no choice. But even when you were a young child, you had to grapple with that on a daily basis. So,、um, yeah, but that was personally my my shock.、Mm. Yeah, it's really difficult growing up or moving to this British culture and trying to navigate it and find where you fall into place among all of this mess and heavy history and everything. I remember growing up feeling really, feeling really weird because going back to this word like belonging, the UK and specifically England and the town that I was in is the only place I could ever feel that I belonged because I, I hadn't. Been anywhere else, and I was born. I was born here, and yet at the same time, it was this intensely displacing experience because it was very clear that I was different. You know, I I did go to a majority Asian school、um, for primary and secondary、oh, school, but it was、uh, majority South Asian, and so that lent itself to a very weird culture in which there was a lot of inter-ethnic racism and like in. Yeah, into ethnic racism because it was within the Asian community. So、mm-hmm. yeah, there were people like me, but only a very small handful,、yeah. and the rest were from different parts across South Asia and Southeast Asia and other places. And so it was this really weird culture in which we were all bound together by our sense of Asianness, but also really split because you would have each ethnic group like saying horrible things to one another or trying to exclude some of the other groups in order to. In turn, foster a sense of their own belonging.、Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it was really weird to grow up in that culture and to feel like this was all I had, but also I clearly don't belong. Yeah, we shouldn't pitch like pit each other against each other, right? And for me, yeah, I only learned more about 
the definition of Asian in the UK after、mm. being here, right? Because I always thought I was Asian until I came to the UK and I realized, oh, I saw this Asian arts agency and I was happy because I thought, wow, there was something、mm-hmm. for me. And then I realized by Asian they mean the South Asian community. And in a way, I I understand because the population is just so much bigger. I think it's the opposite in、mm-hmm. the U.S., right? Megan, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but like in America, it's like if you are、um, East and Southeast Asian American, then you are what is perceived as Asian American. But like, yeah, the people of South Asian heritage is rare. That's、yeah. exactly right. Actually, I was you guys were talking about、um, your experience in the U.K. Being Asian, but not "quote unquote" being the correct type being of Asian, Asian to fit in、yeah. in an Asian majority school,、oh. and I was resonating very, very strongly with that because that's been my experience in in the U.S. in trying to enter into Asian "quote unquote" spaces, but finding that somehow I never belonged. I never fit in, even、mm. in the space where I was supposed to theoretically fit in. I remember joining. Organizations on campus last year, like the Asian American Pacific Islander Pre-Law Society, and going there and finding out that literally everybody was of East Asian, Southeast Asian presenting ethnicities, and being the only person of like an entirely different skin color, entirely different like region of of, of Asia, and feeling just so. Like disconnected and like I didn't belong, even though I was coming into this experience、oh. like hoping、yeah. and and believing that I would find a place that I belong,、um, and like and it's something that I noticed a lot with like spaces that I have recently tried to enter. Like this past summer, I've been very involved in like politics and and advocacy, and recently I went to、um, a a legislative caucus in Sacramento, which was hosted by the AAPI Legislative Caucus. And going there, I knew that a lot of the people would be East Asian, Southeast Asian presenting, and I didn't、mm-hmm. mind that because I like it's my belief that in order to make people of like I guess South Asian American descent feel more comfortable in Asian spaces, it's like the visibility,、um, and I think、mm-hmm. visibility is so important because when I went to this、um, conference, I saw South Asian people of South Asian descent, and that like. Was so powerful to me because it's like we also belong in this space. So I think it's it's really important to make sure that our spaces are inclusive of all different Asian ethnicities in in different parts of the world. That means different things, but I just think that visibility is so powerful. Yeah, for sure, and it shouldn't be mutually exclusive. Like that is what the people in power want us to feel, right? To Feel like、mm-hmm. enemies of each other when what we should be is being there for each other. And yeah, growing up in Hong Kong as well, knowing that I have the privilege of looking like what people、uh, like the majority, right? Again, quote unquote. But um, I definitely know that um my friends who are of South. And Southeast Asian heritages don't have it as easy in Hong Kong. Like systematically, they're just not given the same opportunities, and the spaces are not created for them. And like I always try my best to be an active、um, bystander as well. And just because I don't feel that inequality doesn't mean I should be silent about it. And 
Oh yeah, the the racism in Hong Kong itself as well against people who are in ethnic minoritized groups. It's just so deep rooted, and I really hate that. And again, it goes back to perhaps the history of the colonization that people want us to like be enemies of each other and do not question the authority. And so it's definitely mm. really complicated. Yeah, like divide and conquer, right? I was like. Scrambling for that term for the past like five minutes, but I just remembered it. Divide and conquer is that classic political tactic that's been used by countless numbers of horrible people to gain power themselves. You know, if you divide the masses, if you make them fight amongst one another, that's how you conquer because they won't unite as one. Like, and they won't um, like negative cohesion. You know, like that won't happen because they're all fighting. They're all busy fighting amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. And we cannot give in to that, you know? Yeah. And then the true enemies. Yeah. And that. <laughs> yeah, the true enemy escapes safely. Mm-hmm. A way to avoid these like divide and conquer politics and like avoid buying into them is to create our own spaces of belonging and to cultivate our own places where we can talk to people who look like us and understand our lived experiences. So, Monica, we know that you do this kind of thing. Can you tell us a bit about? Moonfest and like the moon cycle in general uh yeah so trying to create spaces where people can resonate with each other in a safe space right that's that's what i try to do um so yeah moonfest it is an arts festival celebrating east and southeast asian creatives in the uk and we have done the first two moonfest in bristol at two very cool um venues welcoming more than 200 people in one afternoon each time. There's a blend of short films, screenings, live performances, art and food, because personally, I really love it when there's a diversity of not just, you know, people, but also art forms as well. And I would love there to be a space for creatives of East and Southeast Asian creatives to come together and as to why I arrived at that desire, it was again very messy. But um, when I first arrived in Bristol, you know, I knew that Taylor Swift's ex-boyfriend studied in Bristol, <laughs> and it's a very creative hub with like Banksy, of course, being known by pretty much everyone. <laughs> um, and I was really excited to embark on this creative journey in Bristol. Until I realized, wow, I'm again, my difference is made to matter. I remember trying to go into different networking and creative spaces and just felt so different. Be it like the moments of exoticization or tokenism that I mentioned, or maybe it's just feeling like I'm not British enough, I am not male enough especially in the music industry and there were moments when I felt really exploited because of this intersectional identity of being both Asian and a young woman yeah there was this one time when this DJ or producer tried to convince me to be like a YouTube channel presenter but he didn't tell any information about the channel itself and he was just like luring me to get into it and Mm. 
like we met up in like a public space and he made me do an audition and he said something really really inappropriate that I don't want to repeat here but um yeah but that weirded me out so much and that was one of the bigger more shocking moments but there were again an accumulation there was an accumulation of moments like that and I longed to meet other creatives of East and Southeast Asian heritages especially because another point is somehow growing up in Hong Kong even creativity is not encouraged Mm. because the education system and also because of the culture of practicality right and so growing up in Hong Kong I already felt like a weirdo being a creative Mm -hmm. person and so I really wanted to find again my tribe when I came to the UK and Moonfest is not just a creative festival though well maybe you know from the name so (laughs) Moon Festival is also a really beautiful traditional festival celebrated in Hong Kong and there are similar festivals across East and Southeast Asia as well off the top of my head for example um, in Korea there is uh, Chuseok and in Japan there is Tsukimi and I felt like maybe that could be a theme that unite people in the East and Southeast Asian community and um, and then for me, I grew up really loving this traditional festival because my grandma and uncle would always make sure to celebrate it with me, you know, with ice cream mooncakes and with a lot of neon glow sticks, making mm. them into like dresses and balls. And it's a really colorful, vivid, hopeful festival. And I grew up taking it for granted. And then coming to the UK for the first year, It's like two weeks after I came, it was the Moon Festival. And at that time, I had also lost, you know, my grandma and uncle um, a few months back in Hong Kong. And I was coping with this bereavement. But at the same time, I came to this foreign land where no one, of course, would be celebrating the Moon Festival. And so I just went to a supermarket, an Asian supermarket to buy a mooncake to feel a little bit more festive and I almost have this like not crisis but like spiraling mentally into like anxiety when oh you know some special occasion is coming up and mm-hmm. I don't know what to do with it it's, it's mm-hmm. like a trigger right and so I remember thinking ahead to the next moon festival it's like oh how could I celebrate with with friends who who also understand this tradition or maybe who would appreciate this tradition who are allies even if they were not from this culture originally and so fast forward to the next year I had the idea of Moonfest and I wanted it to be in September because now in the UK there is an East and Southeast Asian Heritage Mm. Month in September it's kind of like the South Asian Heritage Month is in August and then East and Southeast Asian Heritage Month is in September and so it's a multitude of reasons why Moonfest came to be the way it was. It is. It still exists, actually. <laughs> I just love that you created this Moonfest community and like and then the Moon Circles and all these group chats because it wasn't really until I met you, which was very recently, guys. I met Monica from an internship that I did 
at a place where she was doing a placement at the time and that's how we connected um but that was actually quite recent in the last couple of months um but it wasn't until I was introduced to you and you, and you messaged me about this moon fest and the moon circles that I probably felt yeah. like Bristol was somewhere where I could feel like I belonged I'm coming back to belonging again even though I've got such issues with it but my issue with Bristol is that to put this into context for those especially outside of the UK so yeah Bristol's amazing for queer rights and yet it hasn't nearly got as far when it comes to black lives like the black lives matter protests were a huge part of pushing that agenda forward a bit in Bristol but Bristol has a very very heavy history when it comes to race because it was one of the major Mm -hmm. ports in the UK during that transatlantic that period of transatlantic trade um, of enslaved peoples and so it has that really hard history to grapple with and it isn't really doing that in any meaningful way yet as as far as I can see let alone when it comes to like Asian rights I think there's this continu- continuous narrative that Asian people aren't oppressed and especially because of things like the model minority myth there's this misconception that we don't suffer and that we don't have a tough life and that we aren't we aren't oppressed in certain ways, um, although, of course, very different ways to the black community and other minoritized communities. And yeah, Bristol mm-hmm. has never really, for me, felt like somewhere where my Asian identity was being like, a pre- like it wasn't somewhere where I could felt like I could be like Asian and proud. Like, yeah, I was Asian, but I didn't feel like I was really engaging with that part of my identity until I heard about this this Moonfest thing which was only a few mm. months ago and that's when I was added to the group chats Monica added me to the group chats <sighs> and suddenly here was this massive community of EC people based in and around Bristol and beyond who were also searching for that sense of community so yeah just thank you to Monica for taking the leap and taking the chance and creating a community like like the Moon Cycle. <laughs> oh yeah you know when I hear words like that it goes straight to my heart because, yeah, when you start something, like no one asks you to start this thing, right? And so there can definitely be moments of doubt, not self-doubt, but maybe doubt from other people, even maybe not everyone in the Asian community would agree with certain initiatives, right? So yeah, just hearing things like that mean means a lot. And yeah, thank you. And yeah, and so the EC Moon Circle, ESC Moon Circle, is another initiative that I started quite recently in relation to Moonfest as well. Because after Moonfest last year, I felt like, oh, I just loved how you know people were making plans after Moonfest to continue hanging out with each other, and there was just so much energy and love and excitement and. And then I had to go back to Hong Kong for a few months to graduate. And I was hoping maybe people would continue to meet. But I guess that wasn't really the case. And it's really hard to keep organizing stuff anyway, understandably. And so when I came back and organized Moonfest again, I really wanted to make sure even before and after Moonfest, there could always be something that bring us together. And it's definitely just it's in in its infancy i mean the easy moon circle and i would love for like everyone to have a say on what to do next what the future is um and then yeah so another related 
identity, not my identity, but in relation to Moonfest is made on the moon, right? And it's basically a producing identity that uh, anything, you know, Eastern Southeast Asian creativity, creativity related would be part of it. And most recently, we did a preview screening of the amazing Korean-American film Past Lives at the local independent cinema watershed. And even though I wish there were more Asian audience members, but um, I made a whole speech about being Asian in the UK. And I still find it to be an incredible first step. And yeah, and so I just hope that, you know, these initiatives would be helpful would be maybe not helpful you like people don't really need help maybe necessarily but just the the space that people want to be part of um yeah because I agree Eden I think Bristol is supposed to be such a creative and diverse city and in many ways it is and it's so beautiful you know with the harbour side and the mountains Mm. mountains maybe the greenery (laughs) but uh, not everyone wants to move to London to experience that normalized difference or diversity and Bristol has a lot of as you said to me before Eden like potential right and and yeah and so I hope that yeah Moonfest can continue to grow but uh we'll see how do you want to see Moonfest grow in the future like you were talking about experiencing um, Moonfest afterwards, how people were making commitments to get in touch and, and keep that connection going. And you know, since you're the organizer of this, this community, of this amazing festival, um, how do you think Moonfest can grow in the future and what reflections do you have for its continuing legacy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not the only organizer. So even though I started the festival, especially Earlier this year, I put out an open call to invite a team of Eastern Southeast Asian, you know, friends, people to come and organize the festival together with me. And it was all voluntary. And I put this little note in the podcast planning session. Money! Exclamation mark. And that's because, unfortunately, in this capitalistic system, everything is capitalized and Mm -hmm. money is really important and I think with you know being a creative personally I know firsthand how exploitative the industry is especially when we are creatives in the minority spaces like creatives of east and southeast asian heritages and so my ethos from the very genesis of Moonfest is to at least pay artists and people involved to an extent maybe not professional rates at Mm -hmm. first but as an honorarium and that is incredibly important to me and so for example every performer gets paid and we try to um, be as welcoming as possible we give not give, we like we encourage the caterers to share food with volunteers as well. And so these are the little ways I try to make sure Moonfest, even when we have so little resources, could be could be a relatively fair festival. But it's very difficult because most of the revenue from mm-hmm. the tickets usually goes to the venue. <laughs> and it's just the unfortunate reality and because the east and southeast asian concept is so new 
like organizations and large institutions don't know what it is and they wouldn't treat us with like extra kindness and generosity and so it's really tough being in this space when when money is like everything and so one immediate thing about the future is hopefully we can have more funding and for me when I started organizing the festival last year I was a student um, jobless because I couldn't well because obviously I couldn't find a job and I was just in the UK for a few months more (laughs) and um, and I could organize it voluntarily and this year as well and then there were voices were like, yeah, of course you organize this voluntarily. Like no one asked you to do this. <laughs> and like, so there were voices like that. And for me, I was like, oh yeah, maybe like no one asked me to do this. So maybe I shouldn't be paid. But then after talking with a lot of experienced creatives, they were like, no, you deserve to be paid for your work fairly. And so that was really grounding and inspiring. And that put me in place as well in terms of being more assured and so that's another thing and also this year we had the festival at uh, a venue that is like slightly off center from Bristol and we heard feedback and we love to hear feedback about oh maybe the location is like slightly too far maybe if you want Mm. more food for more marketing you should do this do that and then I'm definitely absorbing all the feedback, reflecting on it. And I would love to create more spaces for people to share opinions and co-create the festival and community together um, because that is super important to me, like being transparent, being open with the ways that people can be involved to share power and to share the decision-making process as well. And so that's another thing, hopefully, like, there can be a space like that and for the festival to to grow to grow not just in terms of um the people who come but also the people we reach um the creatives we can welcome you know but but then yeah i know it doesn't always have to grow but because the space is so lacking i feel like <laughs> you can hear my desperation maybe even in the podcast like ah, like <laughs> i want i want us to have that space and i want that space to be sustainable as well and so in conclusion if you have resources and money please be give great. it to us <laughs> yeah we need it okay mm-hmm. well yeah. thank you so much monica i don't know if there's any last things you want to say yeah. before we kind of close off this very lovely conversation but if not where can people follow you where can people follow the EC Moon Circle or follow or, or follow Moonfest and then get into the EC Moon Circle <laughs> yeah um so my name is Monica Walright so I think I think SEO it's decent so if you google me <laughs> I should come up and I'm on Instagram and I actually have a YouTube channel as well oh my god that that is a whole other story but basically I went to Mesot which is the border of Thailand and Myanmar and you know Myanmar is a place that I hold very close to my heart as well um and I met this friend who's Karan so uh, an ethnic group in Myanmar and he's a hunter shout out to Ken Kukum as well and so I became a YouTuber thanks to him collaborating with me and yeah so I'm on YouTube as well and my music can be checked out on you know 
um, the streaming platforms because that's how it is these days. And I also do gigs sometimes. And yeah, just talk to me. I'm my DMs are open, I think, except with like weird men, of course. But um. <laughs> oh yeah, stay away, weird men. You are not welcome. And then Moonfest and Made on the Moon are on social media as well on Instagram, on Facebook, and Easy Moon Circle is a WhatsApp community. So all you have to do is just go to the Instagram of Made on the Moon on Moonfest, and then you can find a very short form just for safeguarding purposes, and then you can join the group chat. And it's for anyone who is interested in creativity and community that is of East and Southeast Asian heritages. Um, and I just wanted to say as well that Dear Asian Youth and The Asian Girl is such an incredible platform. I was shocked when I found out, wow, there are like 100k of people on there. Because again, growing up, as we go back to that, we haven't really had that space. It's only in the last few years that this narrative has become has emerged, and it's not even well. Maybe it's like slightly more mainstream now, with like you know Jenny Han's stories on yeah. Netflix and all that. But um, it's still a very um like new new development, and so it's incredible. And what you're doing, Meghna and Eden as well. Please keep going. I love the podcast. And we love you. I just, just, Monica, you're so incredible. <laughs> and, and like, as someone who's like learning about your work and, and Moon Festival for the first time, everything I'm hearing is just so incredibly amazing. So like, thank you for sharing all of that on the podcast with us. Thank you. Yeah. It's not all a rosy journey, but we're definitely trying. So well, here is to more Asian spaces, I guess. Here's to more Asian spaces. Thank you so much, Monica, for joining us today. It's been such a lovely conversation. Listeners, we hope you're enjoying. And yeah, thank you so much. Bye. Bye. As this episode comes to a close, we'd like to shout out the rest of our team who you don't hear from as often as us co-hosts. Their contributions are integral to the smooth running of Dear Asian Girl, and we would hate to take all the credit for what is truly a huge team effort. Annika, May, Pavani, Yalda, Anya, and Michaela are our researchers, and Sonia is our audio engineer. Emma, Prisha, and Claire are our social media writers. Chloe, Kaylee, and Nicole are our social media illustrators. Alex is our social media manager, and Annette is our podcast manager. And finally, Ellie is our podcast director, Thanks, team. We couldn't do it without you.